Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Well, the world may want to say to itself, ooh, the Olympics are coming. You still have the military buildup of the Russians on the border of Ukraine. While Russia claims that it's being surrounded by NATO nations, take a look at where the buildup is and you realize it's Ukraine. That is rather surrounded. With 100,000 troops to the south, you have a a Russia-aligned Belarus to the north, other areas uh, giving their aid and comfort. And as we've discussed, should we be sending troops? The Biden administration really going to send 8,500 troops? 8,500 troops to do what exactly? Go to Eastern Europe and do what exactly? The phrase that I have used here on the program goes as follows. Is the Biden administration prepared to have American soldiers shoot Russian corporals in the face? Forgive me if that's a little strong. But if that's not why you're sending the 8,500 troops, how in the world is it meant to be a deterrent? And does anybody believe an American deterrent under Joe Biden? What options, what opportunities are there? Are we going to war? And should it even be our deal to think about, considering the Germans don't really seem to care all that much? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. 833-468-8669-833. Got Tony, that is the number. Noah Rothman joins us right now from Commentary Magazine is where you can find his work. You see him on NBC, commentary.org. That's where you look it up. Uh, His latest piece, Today in Asinine Studies, which, by the way, should be a college course presented everywhere across the country, Noah Rothman. Um, I had asked two questions on on social media. Are we going to war with Russia and Ukraine? Should we even send troops? And you responded with a spoiler alert saying no and no. So first, break this down for us. Are we going to war with Russia and Ukraine? Well, certainly not if uh, we can manage to deter Russia from doing something reckless on the borders of NATO. There's a preferred straw man that is deployed by, um, I say, extremes on the fringes of the American left and the American right that contends any and all effort to deter Russia from behaving aggressively in Ukraine is tantamount to engaging aggressively ourselves. Um, It's a very familiar argument to students of Cold War history. It's one that's been used by opponents of the exercise of American power since I've been an adult, um, probably much longer than that, and it is utterly baseless fraudulent, intellectually bankrupt. The objective on the part of the West is to prevent a catastrophic event in Europe that would draw in America's ratified allies. And we don't need to look to ancient history to see what that would look like. It occurred earlier this year when Belarus executed a refugee crisis streaming into the borders of Poland, destabilizing the Polish government, necessitating the response of America's allies. An invasion of Ukraine, full-scale invasion of Ukraine, as terrible as that is to imagine, or even something a little lighter, but let's go with the idea of a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, would mean a refugee crisis streaming into Europe, all heading west, two to three million people. Uh, you, don't, you can just recall what that looked like in the Syrian crisis and how that affected European politics 
uh, the prospect of disastrous flood of money out of uh, Europe, malaise, political dissatisfaction, and the prospect of a very ungoverned Ukraine, um, the, uh, which is full of bad actors which would likely necessitate the deployment of special forces, maybe not in Americas, but certainly Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, half a dozen other countries that are going to be affected by this crisis that can't allow an ungoverned space on their border to develop and metastasize irregular units that would harass and destabilize their countries. This would so necessitate now our involvement quickly. This is why we well, need to now, let, let, Let's take a step real quick. Before it would necessitate our involvement Quickly, let's talk about the Europeans in in this case, because the Europeans and and we're talking about France, Germany, the United Kingdom. There are some very interesting takes here. Uh, the UK, they've been sending arms and armaments for a couple of weeks now. You can actually see the flights that were going on before the United States even thought about sending anything. They were sending help to the Ukrainians. Uh, the, the French, as, as I see it, maybe, maybe I've missed where they've been more vocal uh, uh, about this, have, have not been a big conversation piece because the other side of the UK, as I have seen it, is Germany which doesn't seem interested in getting involved because, after all, they need the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia in order to get, get them uh, the energy they need, and it's going to give the Russians billions of dollars. So if Europe sees, as you're describing it, this possibility of if you see invasion from Russia, you're going to see a stream of 2 to 3 million refugees into Europe, which will change the landscape of Europe, how can Germany be so silent? And is the UK working in, in, in besides the capacity we see to get Europe to say, hey, we got to make sure this doesn't happen? Yeah. Again, for the students of Cold War history, will be very familiar with how Berlin is behaving. Before Berlin, it was bombed. They tried to cut a third way between these tensions between the United States and, and Moscow through the whole of, of their post-war existence. The same could be said of France, which briefly – abandoned NATO, left NATO, in order to just carve out its third-way option. Uh, I find these to be obnoxious, pusillanimous, conciliatory measures on the part of these capitals. But it also overinflates. I mean, Germany is a very influential country, so is Paris or France. But it overinflates their relevance within the alliance because you're not talking – when you're talking about these two capitals, you're doing so at the expense of Spain, Portugal, Italy, Poland, Czech Republic, Bulgaria, Romania – half a dozen other countries to say nothing of the non-aligned nations, Sweden and Finland and NATO and uh, Turkey, which is a NATO ally, but sort of a fringy one, uh, all of which have spoken with one voice on this matter. Um, the squeaky wheels are getting a lot of attention here, uh, unduly, in my view, in order to advance a political argument, a domestic political argument, which is that, which is a McGovernite view. America come home. Uh, is one that's very attractive, I think, to, again, the fringes of the right and the left. But we have no evidence from the polling that it's even remotely representative of what the American public thinks. There's close to general unanimity, according to Pew Research Center and CBS News, about the threat posed by Moscow, which most partisans, left and right, agree is either a major or a minor threat, and that the, the uh, American interests that are at stake here are understood Indeed, by more Republicans than Democrats, which is only intuitive because more Republicans than Democrats have spent their entire adult lives marinating in the idea that Russian geopolitical interests in Europe are directly opposed to and threatening toward ours. Talking to Noah Rothman of Commentary Magazine, commentary.org.
That was a mouthful to digest. So let me break it up into the couple of pieces that that I can. And I think you do a very good job of really kind of breaking down something that I I would I argue that foreign policy wise we need to be looking into. What we look to as Europe in the past, I said UK, France, Germany, may not be the Europe we need to look to now. Poland is a very, very astute understander of what happens when Russia is not checked. No one lived through more hellscape uh, than the Poles between Nazism and and, and communism. And they have clearly taken a pro-American point of view, which is certainly not within the mainstream right now uh, of, of Europe. But the, the question before us is we have a president saying 8,500 troops. That's the conversation. We might send 8,500 troops uh, in, into Eastern Europe. You talk about no polling that shows uh, that the United States has an interest, or, or America has an interest, I should say, the people, in bringing troops out of Europe. There is zero polling that would show you that Americans have an interest in sending 8,500 troops to Eastern Europe just to sit there and not actually be a deterrent when Germany won't do anything, including paying up its dues to NATO. So why are we sending 8,500 troops? I, I, I just find these two arguments to be incompatible. Um, I'm not sure what one has to do with the other. The idea behind deterrence is that you flood a zone not only with troops, sure, mechanized infantry, area denial, anti-aircraft, maritime assets. The idea here is to flood the area with personnel to make Russia think twice about moving in the event that it accidentally stumbles into one of these tripwires. That's what deterrence is, is to make the enemy blink, not to engage the enemy. If you've engaged the enemy, deterrence has failed. That's the that's the goal here. We're talking past each other to that extent. And yes, there's no appetite to send troops to Ukraine to combat Russia. You know why? That's not on the table. No one's proposing it. No serious person would even entertain that. There's no treaty obligation there. There's no national security obligation there. The objective is to prevent conflict, not start one. So now I'm going to take a step back, and let me push back on you and challenge you a little bit. First, I'm not the one who said we should send troops. I am discussing what is being discussed. Your argument, it might be a little more uh, directed to the point that people could say it, but no one's seriously considering the thing. But deterrence is also about a belief that the other guy will actually do it. And I don't believe that anybody believes that Biden, as you and I discussed uh, in in great detail, the the failure of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, Noah, that that has created ripples and and massive damage in terms of the perception of the United States, specifically this administration, and how our allies see us. Taiwan taking a second glance at, my gosh, what can China do now? Certainly Ukraine has to be looking at that and saying, holy hell, we've got ourselves a a serious issue. Isn't part of this that even if you sent 8,500 troops, and I get your point about what deterrence is, no one believes that the United States under Biden would act anyway. It's quite possible. That's the wild card. And that's what, uh, you know, keeps keeps you up at night is the extent to which America is credible under this president president. And his behavior in Afghanistan suggests to America's adversaries and certainly near peer competitors like China and Russia that see a window of opportunity and probably don't see in the near future anything that looks this tantalizing to them. And that increases the incentives they have to act. That's very disconcerting. The way to combat that to restore credibility is to behave credibly, uh, is to engage in this with this threat 
and to provide as many off-ramps to Moscow as possible. Now, that involves the deployment, as I said, of assets, of troops, of the implementation, not the threat, the implementation of preventative economic sanctions against the Russian entity, but also diplomacy, symmetry, maybe even the unilateral restoration of some defunct security agreements like Open Skies or the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Something, anything to give them a face-saving off-ramp here in order to get away from the prospect of what I truly believe would be a disastrous conflict that would necessitate America's involvement by virtue of its treaty obligations sooner rather than later. That's the outcome we're all trying to prevent here. And the notion here that we're arguing amongst ourselves over whether, not if, but whether, we should oblige, we should respond proactively to this threat suggests a misunderstanding of what the idea of a bluff is. There's a lot of people who are thinking about, oh, maybe Putin's bluffing. He doesn't want this, and we're flooding the area with weapons. It's good. It's actually starting to make, I think, Moscow think twice a little bit. It's all good, but it was a bluff in the first place. Russia's never going to move. Well, that doesn't understand what a bluff is. If you don't call a bluff, you lose. You always have to call a bluff. A bluff doesn't just end by itself. If you stand by and watch it happen, you lose. By the way, I think that's the best thing you've ever said on the show. Uh, you've been you've been tweeting out. If you follow Noah on, on Twitter, he's he's been tweeting out images of the Russian buildup, and he's like, "That's one hell of a bluff right there." I mean, it's just just laying that out on the line. I I I appreciate your position, and I want you to know that I have said on this show regarding troops, I don't think they should be sent because we're not going to do anything with them. Uh, and I've been taking it from from that uh, point of view, and certainly because I would like to see if if the Europeans are worried about this threat, as you spell it out, what is it that they're doing about it? So let me maybe move the question just a little bit while I still have just a little bit of time left. I I don't disagree with the idea of calling a bluff. I get your point. But why is it that we are calling a bluff? This is what people ask on, on, on Midwest Main Street. Why aren't the Europeans calling the damn bluff? What is it that's happening that we're not seeing from them one concerted voice of this creates disaster for us? Why aren't they leading their own charge? Well, again, uh, Europe does not and has never spoken with one voice. The United States is the first among equals in the Atlantic Alliance. They set the tone. They call the march. And Europe tends to follow along, albeit usually reluctantly and with occasional stragglers. Right now we have Berlin and Paris dragging their feet. Two out of tens of the NATO allies, all of whom, again, are speaking with one voice. You have uh, Poland and the Baltic states streaming lethal weaponry into Ukraine. You have um, political delegations from the U.K., from Poland, from half a dozen other countries streaming into Ukraine to demonstrate their solidarity. Um, And you have the provision of uh, probably some what we understand to be from reports that I can't that I don't think anybody's confirmed uh, covert assets making their way into this country, making Ukraine a harder target. That's deterrence. And it's coming from Europe. It's not coming from us. You keep mentioning these eighty five hundred troops. They're not deployed. They're activated. They're subject to deployment based on the activation of NATO's rapid response forces. NATO hasn't activated rapid re- response forces. The NATO alliance has a veto over our troop deployment right now, and NATO has not moved. So, yes, to the extent that we've seen any movement, movement at all, it has come mostly from European capitals, with a, with a couple of hand holding from, you know, episodes from, from Washington saying, okay, to the Baltics. Okay, you can export the lethal arms that we give you 
into Ukraine. That's about as passive as it gets from Washington. Everything else is coming from Europe. Noah Rothman, you find him on Twitter, Noah C. Rothman, on the Twitter box, his work at commentary.org, Commentary Magazine. And as always, I like when you bring fire. I, I, I don't mind you setting a record straight. I'm down, I'm down with it. I'm down for the uh, thing. I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do so, Tony. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Now, more to get to. I'm Tony Katz. tweet from Randy Weingarten. You know who Randy Weingarten is, right? Randy Weingarten is this. Uh, she's the head of the American Federation of Teachers, and uh, she's the one who, uh, well, claims that she wants kids back in school, but what she really wants is teachers paid for not doing anything. It's Randy Weingarten who works with uh, the um, federal government on creating the rules for kids in schools. I mean, that's that's what's going on. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good uh, to be with you. And then there's the tweet that she uh, deleted. It's a tweet that says racists are showing up in droves to school board meetings, threatening members and superintendents with recalls, firing and worse. It is dangerous. It is divisive. It is un-American. As Virginians, let us remember our history and not repeat the errors of our past. She sent that the end of January. She deleted a tweet. Now, what's interesting here is that she's quoting somebody. Uh, It's quoting a former Virginia Secretary of Education. And what Randy Weingarten said was racists are showing up in droves to school board meetings. The piece, the opinion piece doesn't say racist. It says racist parents. So here you have this former uh, Secretary of Education referring to parents as racist for showing up to school board meetings. And you have Randy Weingarten the president of the American Federation of Teachers, quoting it, but leaving out one word as if somehow that makes it better and we won't notice. When we talk about administrations and unions against parents, it's just fact. I'm Tony Katz. So sharing this on my morning show, and I I thought it was worth repeating, that uh, the Washington Examiner and, and, and others can talk about how Vice President, former Vice President Mike Pence is looking at South Carolina, he's putting all the ducks in a row to, to, to run for president. He's not getting the nomination. I don't, I don't know what we're doing here. He's not getting the nomination. Who's kidding who and why? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's so good 
to be with you on Facebook, Tony Katz Radio, rumble.com slash Tony Katz, and the book Let's Go Bourbon, available at amazon.com. Signed copies soon to be available at TonyKatz.com. Uh, it is the bourbon reader you've always needed. It's perfect for Valentine's Day. It's recipes, it's history, it's quotes. It's a fun read. You just keep it right there by your home bar. Next thing you know, you've got the information right there and then check the book out for yourself. Let's Go Bourbon, available at Amazon.com. The, uh, the theory is, is that Mike Pence, stalwart Republican, conservative, religious right, well, that's, that's perfect for the Republican Party. This is going to happen. Um, no, 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 it's not. And I'm not anti-Mike Pence. He's always been very nice to me. I hope I've I've always been very nice to him, but I'm also very honest. It's the only thing I know how to do. Mike Pence cannot win a primary. I'm going to say this again for the people in the cheap seats. Mike Pence cannot win a primary. You would have to make two arguments in order for that to happen. Number one, you would have to make an argument that there is a Trump base that would be willing to forgive Mike Pence for something he didn't even do wrong. And that that forgiveness would come because the other option is just too bad, too gross, too ugly, too extreme. I don't personally believe that to be true. Now, I'm breaking that down a little bit further. Let's be clear. Mike Pence is not a traitor, and the people say otherwise are wrong. I'm willing to say that out loud. Mike Pence had no ability at all in any way, in any single way possible, to say, sorry, um, we're not going to accept these election results. Send them back to the states for recertification. That was not something that he had the ability to do. His job at that moment was rather ceremonial. It isn't that I wouldn't want to have Donald Trump in office instead of Joe Biden. It's that, well, rules be rules, be rules, be rules, be rules. That's what is. Donald Trump may put out there uh, that uh, the committee should be investigating uh, Nancy Pelosi, why she did a poor job of overseeing security, and why Mike Pence did not send back the votes, recertification, or approval, in that it has now been shown that he clearly had the right to do so. I'm not sure where it was shown that he had the right to do so. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen where it's written somewhere that the vice president can send them back. The state's certified. Now, you can argue that states should not have certified. That's my argument. I make that argument here and now to anyone who wants to take me on on the subject. 833-468-8669. Pennsylvania should never have certified the election results. Never mind that they're already discussing that Act 77 is unconstitutional. That if you want to change the way that the votes can be uh, gathered, you can do that via constitutional amendment. But you can't, it doesn't matter if you had 
bipartisan support, as they like to describe it. But, and I'd have to go back and check who, who actually voted. Bipartisan support in 2019 to change these voting rules. You need the people to approve that, and that takes a constitutional amendment. Now, this is, of course, being uh, appealed to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and the leftists, whether it's Shapiro, uh, I think that's how you pronounce his name. It's Shapiro, not Shapiro. I could be wrong. Uh, who's the Pennsylvania Attorney General and the governor, Tom Wolf? Man, they, they are, don't like this at all. How dare you mess with them messing with voting rights? I have argued that you have the judiciary that usurped the legislative. Changing how long you can vote afterwards, the hours of, of polling, etc. No, legislatures make this decision, not judiciaries, not the judicial branch. So we should take a look at this and say that's simply unacceptable. And for that alone, for that alone, I would have not certified the Pennsylvania vote. So when you had members of Congress saying, I have questions about this, because they had a legal right to ask these questions, to say, I disagree, I want to uh, uh, protest this. I made the argument that they were within the letter of the law. It wasn't a problem to me. Whether you agree or disagree with them, that's different. Were they within the letter of the law? What we're told by groups left uh, on the political left is it was an affront to, to the republic. No. They usually say an affront to democracy because they don't even know what a republic is. It's pretty sad. It wasn't. Now, the argument that was given to me by people on the political right who opposed this was, well, it sure as bloody hell is an affront to federalism. I said, that's an interesting take. That's an interesting, interesting, interesting take. The idea that states have, have rights. But I don't think there's any doubt that Pennsylvania should never have been certified and those electoral votes should not have been counted. Now, I think you'd still have a President Biden in that case. But it still doesn't say that Mike Pence had the ability to do that. I don't see where this comes from. I don't see it where it happens. Now, back to Mike Pence running for office. None of what I just said matters. The view will be, ah, Mike Pence. And I don't think a base votes for him in a primary. Not a general, in a primary. First, you got to get through a primary. And you're going to be going up against uh, Ron DeSantis. You're going to be going up against Greg Abbott. You're going to be going up against Nikki Haley. So here's Pence trying to build out his evangelical love in South Carolina, as the article discusses. But you've got Nikki Haley, the former governor. You've got Tim Scott, the current senator. You also have Lindsey Graham. You think Lindsey Graham is going to put his backing behind Mike Pence? I don't think that's coming. Then you have Mike Pence's other issues. Mike Pence is the easiest guy to paint. He was silent while Donald Trump was running roughshod over democracy. Dude, I I literally never said those words until right now. You know that's going to be the headline everywhere. Mike Pence, you know he hates gay people. Not true, but you know he's that's, that's what's going to get said. The story about Mike Pence has been written. So Mike Pence has a lot of work to do to unwrite that story. 
Also, if we're going to go back in just some recent history, uh, primary history, and make the claim that he's going to, as as the article discusses, uh, he's putting a lot into South Carolina. Uh, strategy to build support with conservative activists and Republican operatives in the state. A South Carolina strategy is a tough one. It's not as ridiculous as the Rudy Giuliani Florida strategy. But a South Carolina strategy is a tough one. You're saying that what you're going to do is not worry about whether or not you are top three in Iowa or New Hampshire. You... You're gonna you're gonna see if you can make it to South Carolina. You know who made it to South Carolina? Newt Gingrich in 2012. You know who got their ass kicked in Florida? Newt Gingrich in 2012. Yeah, you can't you can't have this strategy. I think you're 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 waiting too long. For sure. Now, it's possible that they're also looking at some other strategies and they, they're not giving up on the idea that they're going to do something in, in Iowa or New Hampshire. What they have to recognize is that the base wants a fighter. And I don't think they view Mike Pence as that. Too cordial. Too congenial. They're going to play that video of Kamala Harris saying, I'm speaking. I'm speaking during the debate to show that he's just too congenial. Mike Pence has a place. Mike Pence is an important part of the party. I am a believer that his belief in servant leadership is so great and so valuable that it is will actually be invaluable to the party. And the people who say there's no place for Mike Pence, those are, I would argue, unserious folk. Mike Pence would help any administration be better. Mike Pence through a concept of strategy, Mike Pence through relationships, Mike Pence through his presence, whether he be an ambassador to the UN or whether he be a secretary of state, Mike Pence offers much. And that can't be denied. You want Mike Pence on your side. And we should be clear, I don't even know if the man's running for president, but of course you go through these machinations. What is he supposed to do? He's got it. Might as well. I mean, weirder things have happened. Both Donald Trump and Joe Biden became president. Hell if I know what I'm talking about. Just put it out there and see what's up. I'm announcing my run for president next Tuesday. Why not? But no. No, 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 no. Talk about Pence all you will. He's not winning a nomination. That's not coming meanwhile tom brady has retired 22 seasons in the nfl seven super bowls he wrote a a tome he did he wrote a massive massive piece saying yeah um i'm just not willing to put in the commitment it's a long long thank you and he did it on twitter multiple multiple tweets uh, uh, uh about it basically saying look uh i, I i've thought about it um, there is a physical, mental, and emotional challenge every single day that has allowed me to maximize my highest potential. And I've tried my very best these past 22 years. There are no shortcuts to success on the field or in life. 
This is difficult for me to write, but here it goes. I am not going to make that competitive commitment anymore. I have loved my NFL career, and now it is time to focus my time and energy on other things that require my attention. What's interesting is that as you go through this, Tom Brady, of course, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback, uh, can we argue the, um, the former New England Patriot? I don't think he mentions the New England Patriots. There's Bruce Arians. Thank you to all the Bucks coaches, to the Bucks staffers. He then gets into some personal things there. Uh, he does not mention. He does not mention the New England Patriots. Uh, I I don't know. I have no idea why that is. Maybe he'll mention it somewhere else. That's a that's a pretty obvious gap. <laughs> In your goodbye, right there. But the best is from New York. NBC New York on Twitter with the greatest. This trolling is so good, they could actually do the Twitter feed for Wendy's. Breaking. Tom Brady, who lost two Super Bowls to the Giants during his legendary 22-year NFL career, retires. That's... That's incredible. That is absolutely positively incredible. NBC in New York wrote that tweet. Man, that's that's just vicious and cold and altogether nasty. Altogether nasty. Gotta love it. Absolutely positively. Gotta love that. More coming up. Keep it right here. I'm Tony Katz.